Let us pray. Our most gracious and holy Father, we thank You. We thank You for Your Word that You have given to us. We thank You for the refreshment that it brings. We thank You for the conviction that it brings. The revelation that it brings to us. For it is the very Word that You have breathed out through Your various apostles, through Your various followers, that we might be changed as we encounter it. That You might renew our hearts and our minds. And so fulfill that work in us this day that we would be renewed. Cause this Word to be deep within that we might know Your Spirit is deep within us. For where Your Word is there, Your Spirit is. And so grant this Word to be in us that we might be more and more assured of the work of Your Spirit within. And that we might go forth as Your people always. We ask this all through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Know thyself. Know thyself. I'm sure many of you know who said those words. If you don't, they're the words of Socrates, the philosopher. You know, that great Western philosopher that lived in Greece a very long time ago, about 23 to 2400 years ago. He was a troublemaker in many ways, but his understanding of the world has made him such a well-known philosopher that many simply say that all of Western philosophy is but a footnote to what he had to say. That everything else is a response to Socrates. All other philosophical inquiries, all other philosophical wonderings look back to the things that Socrates said as recorded by his disciple Plato. But those two words, know thyself, they're extraordinarily important words. For they remind us that in order to better understand this world, you have to look back at yourself. You have to understand who you are. Because if you don't understand who you are, then you won't search and understand the world. You see, if you think that you're smarter than everyone else, when you're not, then you're not going to inquire about things. You're just going to assume you know it all. That you don't need to learn anything else, and thus you will not learn anything else, and thus you have not known yourself. For if you knew yourself, you would realize that you don't know everything. In so many areas of our life, this simple statement, know thyself, is of utmost importance. Without knowing yourself, you can't know God. That is where it comes down to, if you do not know and understand who you are in and of yourself, then how can you know and understand and love this great God above who has created all things, who has worked to redeem all things, who has worked to make Himself known in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. So know thyself this day. For remember the words of, from Proverbs, chapter 28, 13, where it says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But, who, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So know thyself. 
If you want to conceal transgression, then you will not prosper. You will not know the salvation that God is bringing. But if you confess those transgressions, if you confess those sins and turn from them, you will know the mercy of God and the fullness of His forgiveness in your life. It requires you to know yourself, to understand your sinfulness, in order to then hand it over to God, so that God can then deal with that very sinfulness. And I think this knowing yourself is a good way to approach our gospel text this day, to approach this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Once again, Luke does the heavy lifting for me. He gives me an idea. He gives us all an idea of why Jesus told this parable. There in verse 9, Jesus says, He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. You see, this is a parable that we all know very well, I think. Most of us have heard it throughout our lives and so often we walk away thinking we get it. And we always pick up a piece of it. I think most of the time the main lesson is be like the tax collector, not like the Pharisee. But guess what that leads to? That leads to little self-righteous thoughts of thank God I'm not that Pharisee. Thank God I don't think I'm better than everyone else. Like Maybe you don't say that literally out loud, but it's tempting to think those thoughts. And so I want us to step back and maybe set aside what we've learned about this parable in the past and to hear this parable afresh. Because I think it's necessary to hear this word afresh, to hear this parable as similarly as those who heard it in the first century. And so that means that we need to have a little bit more context for what's happening in this parable. And so for some of the context... Jesus told this parable to those who trusted in themselves and thought that they were righteous. Typically, we think of the righteous as those who observe the law properly. Those who do all the little things and those who don't cheat on their income taxes. Those who do what society and the Christian tradition expect of them. We think that they are righteous. And rightfully, because that's how the Greeks tended to understand righteousness. But Kenneth Bailey pointed out something, the great writer, the great teacher of Middle Eastern studies, he pointed out that there's something deeper to this word righteousness when you look at the Hebrew, when you go back to the Hebraic understanding. That properly speaking, the one who is righteous is the one who has been welcomed into the presence of the king. He's been granted status with the king. And so righteousness is not primarily about outward behavior, but about the king welcoming you. The one who's been granted or gifted the ability to come into the king, into his very presence. And so that righteousness is about the kindness of the king himself. A very beautiful example of this is the book of Esther. Remember, when she had to go approach the king, her very husband, she was approaching him in the throne room, which meant instant death. You did not approach the king without him calling for you to come. It was a breaking of the royal law to come before the king without being invited. But it could be mitigated. That misdoing, that sin before the king, could be mitigated by simply the king extending his scepter toward that one who came into his presence. And so Esther took a chance when she needed the king to act. 
And she charged into his presence in the middle of him having a meeting with other rulers, with other governors, with the people, with his council. It was scandalous for her to suddenly approach the king on his throne. But he looked upon Esther, his wife. He knew that she would not interrupt without a good reason, and so he extended his scepter to hear her prayers, to hear her words to him. And she was granted righteousness before the king. So these who trust in themselves and think that they are righteous are ones who have forgotten that their own coming to the king is not based on themselves. It's not based on their abilities. It's not based on their good deeds. But it's based upon the goodness and the steadfast love of the king himself toward them. Thus, to come to the king is based on the king welcoming and calling for people to come to him. It's not based on what is in you. And so these ones who trusted in themselves treated others with contempt, Jesus says, or late St. Luke says in introducing this parable, the others, that is, the other people of the land, the hoi polloi, the ordinary common folk, those who were self-righteous and thought themselves better, looked down everyone else. So here we are. We've heard what the context here is for this opening sentence, that that righteousness is not necessarily about good deeds, But the people trusted in their own good deeds instead of trusting in the king who would invite them into his presence and who, if they came into his presence, could extend a scepter of reception to them, a scepter of welcome. Instead, they were confused and thought it was all about them. And thus, because they had all their good deeds, all of their good works, they would look down on those who had nothing. And then Jesus tells us that two men went into the temple to pray. Again, something that Kenneth Bailey points out that I didn't know or realize is that this phrase, went into the temple to pray, is about public worship. That they went up to the temple to pray in the midst of the assembly, to pray in the midst of the public worship of God at the temple. Because there were every day two services of worship and prayer. The morning and evening sacrifices were performed and the people would gather to hear and see that sacrifice and to hear the liturgy and the prayers and the psalms offered on behalf of the people. And then the priest would go into the holy place, not the holy of holies, for this was just the daily sacrifice. It was not the once a year Yom Kippur sacrifice, but the daily sacrifice. But when that was done, he would carry the bowl of incense into the holy place and lift up prayers for the people. And during that time when he was not in front of the people, The people would pray. They would begin praying their prayers for at that moment the priest was standing in front of the Holy of Holies, in front of the shrouded Holy of Holies, not in there, and he would be lifting up the people's prayers with the incense, the prayers of the people ascending before him up to God's throne, a sweet-smelling aroma before God, and the people would offer their personal prayers in that moment. That's what Zechariah is doing at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. He is the priest who has been chosen to carry the prayers, to attend to the daily sacrifices. And he is in the holy place offering those prayers when Gabriel appears to him. That is what is happening there. And that, I think, and am more and more convinced, is what is happening here. The Pharisee and the tax collector are going up to the temple to pray in the midst of the daily worship of God. For that was the time to go pray, the time that you know that God was listening. So the Pharisee and the tax collector 
the good guy and the bad guy. Because everyone hated tax collectors in Jesus' day. They're the people who worked for the Romans, we know. They're the people who extorted everyone. They're the people who were unjust and unfairly treated everyone. They stole from people. And the Pharisee, in the people's eyes, here was the righteous people, the righteous ones, the ones who obeyed God's law, the ones who did what God told them to do, the ones who could come before God and pray to Him, the ones who could pray on behalf of others even, a Pharisee and a tax collector. See, in the eyes of the people, in the people's ears listening in this day, the Pharisee is the good guy, not the tax collector. The tax collector is the traitor. The Pharisee is the one who observes God's law. He is the one who obeys God. He is the one who follows God. He is the one who knows every jot and tittle of the law and in fact can teach others about the law. But he's always careful not to get too close to the unclean because he doesn't want to be stained by the world so he can maintain his righteous standing before God. The Pharisee is the good guy in the people's eyes, in the people's hearing of this parable. We have to remember that. The Pharisee is the good guy. And so hear the words of this good guy Pharisee who in the temple, when the priest steps into the holy place, the Pharisee steps out from everyone else and goes and stands probably as close to the holy place as he can get. And he begins praying, probably out loud to everyone, I thank you, God, that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give of everything that I get. I give tithes of all that I get, Lord. I'm one of the good guys. I'm a religious expert. I understand the law. I'm not one of these people who have turned from you, God. So I thank you that I am what I am before you. That I can do all these good deeds. Be in the good crowd. That's what the Pharisee is saying. But it's ironic in many ways as we reflect on who the Pharisees are. He says, I thank you that I'm not an extortioner. You know, extortioner, someone who manipulates others to gain for himself. As if in this very prayer, he's not attempting to manipulate God into good standing with God. He's not showing off his good deeds before God. I mean, that's not what he's doing. He's not trying to extort God himself and have a good standing with God. He says, I thank you that I'm not like these unjust ones. The unjust, the ones who treat people unfairly when it comes to the law, who are only in it for their own gain, who look down on others as if He's not looking down on all these other unwashed masses before Him because they don't have the gifts that He does, because they don't have the abilities that He has, that they are unable to fulfill the requirements of the law like He can. He's not unjust like them. He simply looks down upon them and treats them badly because of their inability. Thank God I am not an adulterer, he prays. That is one who is not faithful to his marriage. As if he isn't being unfaithful to God in this prayer. This prayer where all he does is talk about himself. We get that. He is talking about himself throughout this prayer. I'm not an adulterer. His heart is far from God. And thus, he is not truly loving God. He is not being loyal to this 
good God who is ready and able to receive him. All he does is talk about himself. And he goes on, I tithe, I fast twice a week when only once a year is required by your law. At the feast of Yom Yom Kippur, on that great day of atonement, that is when the people are required to fast. But the Pharisees, being the Pharisees, love to build fences. They love to build extra rules and regulations. And so they built all kinds of walls around the core of the law in order to make sure that they don't step on the law, to make sure that they don't break the regulations. And so instead of just fasting once a year, in order to make sure that they get it once a year, they fast twice a week. And so he says, I fast twice a week on your behalf, O God. And even above that, I tithe everything that I receive. I give a tithe of everything that I get. I go beyond what your law required of the grain. I go beyond the wine. I go beyond offerings of meat. I give of even my vegetable garden itself. I give of all the tiny little herbs I grow. Above and beyond everything I get, I tithe to you, God. All of this wrapped up in a nice, neat prayer. And the people hearing this are thinking, well, yeah, that's what he does. That's great. That's a good thing, right, Jesus? That the, tax, that the Pharisee does this. Jesus doesn't comment on that yet, though I have given you lots of hints that this is not how we approach God. This is not how we view the world. But then Jesus turns to this bad guy, the tax collector. What is his prayer? What does he ask? The tax collector standing far off from that holy place, standing far off from the other people, won't even look up to heaven. It's normal that when you would pray, you would raise your hand, stand up and look toward the heavens and pray to God for that's where God is. He is in the heavens and visibly present with us. But this poor tax collector is so ashamed of who he is, he cannot even look up, which is the normal thing you do in prayer is to look up in this time. And he begins beating his chest. He begins beating upon his own heart in the shame that he feels, that he recognizes in himself. And he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Something I've overlooked over the years of studying this passage was that word behind merciful. Be merciful. It's not the regular word for mercy. If you've heard the liturgy in Latin or Greek, you have heard the phrase, Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy. That eleison is the normal word for mercy in the Scriptures. But here is a different word. In fact, the word here is a word related to atonement. It's the word related to propitiation. The word related to God putting away His wrath and God putting aside our sins in order that we would be welcomed into His presence. And so it is a word that can mean mercy because for God to put away His wrath and to put away our sins is to show mercy towards us. But it's attached to sacrifice. Again, another aspect of why I think this is happening at the temple during one of the daily sacrifices is here this sinner, this tax collector... Instead of saying, Kyrie eleison, he says, God, make the atonement apply to me. Oh God, make this atonement come and be for me. 
Let it be on my behalf. Let this atonement apply. The tax collector knows the depth of his sins. He knows the depths of his transgressions. He knows that he has sinned against God and his duties to being a tax collector. That he's gone beyond what he's supposed to collect. He knows that people hate him. He knows he works for an unjust government. And so he cries out, let this atonement that you have brought to us apply to me. Let it take away my sins too. Not just everyone else's, but let it be for me. He knows his sin's evil. In a way, he might be thinking, it's all well and good for these good people that this atonement would apply to them, but what of me? Will this be for me too? Can I be saved or am I too grave a sinner? Save me. Save me, O God. And so, Jesus concludes His parable this day. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. There's the great turnaround. The people thinking, oh, that Pharisee prayed such a beautiful prayer. He prayed as we know Pharisees pray, acknowledging the good deeds that they do, acknowledging the good things that they do for God. That's a good way to pray, they think. But then this tax collector, of course he's going to pray about his sinfulness. But Jesus flips everything upside down and says, that man, that tax collector is the one who is made just before God. He is the one who is brought into God's presence. He is the one to whom God extends the scepter of welcome, the scepter of forgiveness, the scepter of pardon and peace. Not the Pharisee. Not the one who thinks he is the good guy. But the one who knows that he is really the bad guy is the one that God will receive. God turns away from the Pharisee to look humbly and to look joyfully upon that tax collector who recognizes his need for atonement, his need to be made right with God himself. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. God will tear down the exalted one. He will tear down the prideful one. He will put stumbling blocks in the way of the prideful one. That's what that proverb says. The one who lifts himself up, the one who can conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But the one who reveals them, who confesses them, who turns from them, he will be received and receive mercy. He will receive forgiveness. And that's what the tax collector's prayer is. He comes toward God, crying out for mercy, crying out for atonement, crying out for God's grace, for God's steadfast love toward the covenant to be even for Him the grave and terrible sinner that He is. And so He is justified. He is received. He is counted righteous, given the King's presence fully and completely. For He humbled Himself, and so God exalts Him into His very courts. How lovely are Your courts, O Lord God! This tax collector gets to know those courts that day. Whether he realized it or not, whether he grasped his prayer or not, God has welcomed him and is beginning his work of change in him. He is making him to know that he is welcomed into his presence because he recognizes his sin, he recognizes his brokenness, he recognizes his waywardness and his refusal to obey the law of God. 
For that is the Pharisee's problem. It's not merely that he lacks some kind of love toward other people. It's that he doesn't even, in the most basic things, obey God's law because he avoids God's law by building up all these other laws around him. And that's easy for us to do, to be like, well, I'm going to put this in place and this in place and this in place to make sure that I don't do this. So we quit thinking about actually doing what God told us to do because we're worried about all of our man-made rules and regulations. Instead of just simply letting the law of God assault us, letting the law of God break us down so that we can confess our sins and receive God's pardon. Instead, we get caught up in doing all these other things that God didn't tell us to do that may be extensions of His law, but we're not thinking about how to obey His law. We're not thinking about how His law convicts us and turns us from our sins by driving us to Christ. But that's the glorious thing of why we have our liturgies. That we can reflect on the words of our liturgies in both morning and evening prayer. After we hear the sentences of Scripture, which are typically about God's greatness, oftentimes we hear of God's greatness, we immediately turn toward confession. We turn toward confessing that we are sinners through and through and we receive the absolution after that. But then we have the words of the invitatory. Part of those words is, O God, make speed to save us. O Lord, make haste to help us. Even after confessing our sins, even after hearing the absolution, we return back to our need for God to work. That is what the tax collector is continually doing. He is being driven back to his need for God. And that is what our prayers should do, always drive us back to our need for God. O God, make speed to save us. Make haste to help us. Don't be slow in responding. But turn and be gracious. And the same with our sacraments in baptism. Those who come are given everything because they have nothing. In the Lord's Supper, we are offered the very sacrificed wine. Everything that we need is given. And we come as those who are in desperate need, saying, make speed to save us. Make haste to help us. And that is where the tax collector is and where the Pharisee isn't. It's not that one is the good guy and the other the bad guy. It's that they're both bad guys. The, tax co- the Pharisee thinks he's a good guy. However, the tax collector knows he's a bad guy. The Pharisee is really a bad guy that thinks he's good. And the tax collector is a bad guy who knows he's bad. That is the great difference here. One comes humbly before God knowing his brokenness, recognizing that he can come only because he is broken. Only because he is confessing his sin and crying out for atonement for himself. And in that, he can see the reality of the welcoming God, the receiving. He can turn to God in mercy and receive that mercy and become a loyal disciple. And that is what we must be confronted with this day. We must recognize and ask ourselves Am I one who recognizes that welcome of God to the sinner? That I can confess my brokenness. I can confess the ugliness of my interior life. I can confess the ugliness of my outward life. The things that I have done wrong. And that I can be received by God through Jesus Christ. I can be forgiven of what I have done. And when I am forgiven, it is done away with. It is no longer there between me and God anymore. It is dealt with. 
And I can respond with love and joy and loyalty to this gracious God who has dealt with my sins through His Son and applied that forgiveness to me through the work of the Spirit through His Word? Or do I just go through the motions? Or can I see through those motions what I truly need? Can I see the need that I have? Will I cry out, Oh, that this atonement would be for me! Oh, cursed body that seeks sin day in and day out. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ Himself. Will you cry out with me? Thanks be to God that there is a sacrifice for sinners such as us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.